All right, guys, welcome back to Revive School. Lesson 89, Psalms 126 and 127. It really has been an interesting week. You think about this. We had to talk about Psalm 119, the most verses in a chapter in the book of Psalms, 176 verses. And Kevin, what's the whole chapter about? The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord and, and how the word of the Lord is to carry us throughout this, this whole process called life, the daily activities, the ins and the outs. And here's what I love about how Psalm 119, what it does is as you're going in and out of life, as you're touching, you know, the, the word of God on the doorpost, like that's the mentality with the Israelites, you're keeping your eyes on the Lord. Like that's the whole point. The word of the Lord is to point you to the Lord. So as you're what we would call these songs of ascent, you know, from Psalm 120 really to Psalm 134, 135, and, and then 136, you have that, it's broken up into that section you know, it's, it's as you're going up to Jerusalem, you're singing. Well, Psalm 126 is really no different. This is the seventh psalm, the song of ascent. Again, we do not, in this context, we don't know the author, but we do know this. Nelson's commentary would say that this psalm, Psalm 126, now there's only six verses. We went from 176 at the beginning of the week to six verses. And we don't know the author. We don't actually know. The only occasion that we probably would know Nelson's commentary says is that it comes from the time of restoration of Jerusalem following the Babylonian captivity. So this is kind of crazy. Probably during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. That that would be the thought process. In fact, here's just a couple pictures. Ezra, Kevin, 2, verse 1, if you don't mind. Ezra 2, 1. Again, this is the, the picture of these now are the people of the province who came from those captive exiles. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had deported to Babylon. Each of them returned to his hometown, Jerusalem and Judah. So this is being written after the activity uh, of being held in ex- exile and they're, they're headed home. If you want to go to Nehemiah 7, verse 6. Nehemiah 7, verse 6. Again, uh, there's a couple waves. Do you guys remember this? There's waves of people that came. Uh, Nehemiah 7, 6 says, these are the people of the province who went up among the captive exiles, deporting, deported by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Each of them arrived, each of them returned to his own town in Jerusalem and Judah. If you go to uh, one more, Kevin, Isaiah 10, 22. Again, this thought process is that there's three separate returns. When exactly, not sure, but in Isaiah 10, 22, in this context, Israel, even if your people were as numerous as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction has been decreed, justice overflows. So Kevin, when you hear a remnant, first thing that comes to your mind? Small. Small group. A smaller group is coming back. So let me just give you, the, the, and this has maybe been a while since we've studied the Ezra, the Nehemiah, the lemons. Remember the pictures of, of the lemons? You know, here you have the Babylonian. They're referring back to uh, the three specific returns. The first one would have been under a guy named Zerubbabel. Okay, and this would have been in Ezra 1 through 6, roughly, uh, John MacArthur says, 538 B.C. Okay, can you read that, Kevin? (laughs) All right, another return is in Ezra 
7 through 10, MacArthur says that would have been a time frame of roughly 458 B.C. So the reason I'm saying this is this is the return, right, that they have back to, Kevin? Jerusalem. Back to Jerusalem. Okay. So some point, the writer, the unknown writer is talking about this freedom that's going to come from their captivity. And then there's another wave of, of return. And this one would have fallen under Nehemiah. Okay. In Nehemiah... 1 through 2, and again, MacArthur says roughly 445 B.C. So here they are returning to Jerusalem. This is the mentality that that they have. Now, if you want to go to, if you don't mind, there's this thought of there's going to be joy in this process. Like we are coming back to the land, right? The land that we were kicked out of, the land that we were thrown out of. For how long were they gone for, Kevin? 70. 70 years. So imagine being away for 70 years, 70 years, and they are coming home. And that home, crazy enough, is where, in their minds, is where God is. So now watch, if you would, in verses 1 through 3, okay, there's this praise of we're coming back. So it says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. You know, it's this, it's this mentality of, I I know, silly, horrible illustration, but like, you know, like if you're a kid for the first time, you go to Disneyland, right? And like you walk in and you're like, wow, this is really cool. This is really big. I've always seen it on, you know, TV. I've always heard, and it's kind of like, it's surreal. What the Israelites are experiencing, like it's so unexpected that they're coming back into their land. It really felt more like a dream than reality. Like, hey, we're, we're touching the land that God said he was going to give us. And, and now we have it. And so what I want to do is, is Wearsby, is he describes these two first, uh, first two verses. And he says this, within us, okay, is the joy of freedom. Just think about this image. Spiritually. Once you were in bondage and now you've been set free, you experience the joy of the Lord. I mean, I, I can't think of a, a better illustration, Psalm 126, that it describes us even. <laughs> like, here we are, we've been in this, but when you encounter the King of glory, when you encounter who Christ is and how he truly has set you free from whatever it is, pride, addictions, um, I mean, anything, geez, <laughs> lust. You name it, eating habits, all of these things that get in the way. And then God says, I set you free from it. You know how freeing it is? Like when you don't have the pain, you don't have the weight, you don't have all of these things that you're feeling about. Man, there's just freedom. And you're kind of like, is this really a dream? And and that's what they're saying. And it says in verse two, our months were filled with laughter then. (laughs) And our tongues with shouts of joy. And then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. In other words, this is crazy, but other nations began to realize, look what God did for those people. Yeah, he kicked them out 70 years, but now he brought them back and they're recognizing God truly gets the glory. Isn't that not true? Of him bringing them from bondage and putting them and setting them free. There is joy. Isn't it the best thing ever just to have laughter? Our mouths were filled with laughter. When you're like smack dab in the middle of God's will and you know it, it's just there's something, something refreshing. But what's weird is, and when I see this, it says we are like those in a dream. It's almost like, though, you have to wonder, did they actually even believe it's going to happen? 
I think they dreamed about it. But when it happens, it was kind of this surreal. So I asked the Lord, Lord, where else do we see believers wanting something, talking to you about something? And then when it happens like that, that's not really, is this really of you, God? Kevin, can you go to, I'm going to go to the book of Acts, Acts 12, verse 6. Acts 12, verse 6. To me, I feel like this is kind of like a New Testament version of Psalm 126. And in Acts 12, it says this. On the night before Herod was to bring him out for execution, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers, while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. In other words, Kevin, everybody's guarding Peter. Nobody wants Peter to get out. A buddy had just been killed before, so it doesn't really look good with Peter. And in verse 7, it says this. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared. And a light shone in the cell and striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, quick, get up. And then the chains fell off his wrist. So right away, uh, (laughs) Peter's being set free. He's in bondage and now he's being set free and the chains fell off his wrist. And then the angel, okay, because angels are ministering spirits, it says in Hebrews, who are to help advance the kingdom of God. The angel says, get dressed, put on your sandals. And so he did. And he wrap your cloak around you like get decent (laughs) and then follow me. So Peter went out and he followed and he did not know that what took place through the angel was real because Peter thought the whole time, what was he doing? He was seeing a vision. Like the reality was Peter was in chains. Peter was set free. And as he's actually experiencing leaving the jail, jail, what does he think, Kevin, the whole time? It's just a vision. (laughs) You know, people that are so prophetic, sometimes they live in la-la land. (laughs) And they're like, wait, this is real? (laughs) I mean, this is totally part of our team. (laughs) Gotta love Mindy or Painter. All right, let's keep going. So Acts 12, verse 10, uh, it says this. And after, this is Peter and the angel, okay? They passed the first and second guard posts. Like the reality is, is that God truly took Peter from bondage, amen? And then he brought him to an iron gate that leads into the city, which then opened to them by themselves. So any obstacle, this is the coolest part about the story I love. Any obstacle that was in Peter's way, God just took care of it. And God literally, watch, it says they went outside and then passed one street. So like, it, it, it almost was like, it was so surreal. He's like, I'm going to take you to the extreme. And the angel then left him. And then in verse 11, says the best, Peter came to himself. He said, wow, this is real. Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. Like he had to go through the first post, the second post, through the city gates, and then onto the next street. And now he's like, oh yeah, God's, God's in this. Like it wasn't enough that his, his, his chains fell off, right? It wasn't just enough that all of the soldiers were somewhere gone. Nobody ever talks about that. And he says, look, I've been rescued. Now watch, keep going. He says when he realized this, like, hey, I've been set free. What does he do? He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. I mean, I think it's a fair assumption. Without even reading the rest of the story, without even knowing, they were probably praying, Kevin, For Peter's release. For Peter's release. So Peter goes to a place, a house of prayer. We could hang out here and teach on this. I I just want this image, you guys, is that here they are praying for their friend's release. Peter's actually experiencing the release. Now watch what it says in verse 13. He knocked at the door in the gateway. And a servant named Rhoda came to answer. Now, I always picture Rhoda just this little person and She came to the answer and she recognized Peter's voice. Hey, hey, let me in. It's Peter. And because of her, look at this, because of her joy, she didn't open the gate. (laughs) 
Like she was so excited about Peter's freedom. It's like when there's true freedom, like there's this joy that comes from the Lord that, that's unexplainable. And she didn't even open up the gate. She ran in and announced to all of her friends, all of the family, hey, Peter's outside the gateway. Verse 15, it says, you're crazy. They told her, but she kept insisting that it was true. And she said, no, I, I've, heard, I've, accurate, I've accurately heard his voice. And instead of all of them just getting up and going, right, they argue. Now, like, that can't be, this can't be real. And they said, ah, it's his angel. Verse 16, Peter, hey guys, I'm still out here. <laughs> he kept on knocking. And when they opened the door, finally all of them figured it out. And they saw him and they were like, whoa. Can you go to the emojis for a second? Oh, <laughs> like they're freaking out. They prayed for his release. And when it actually happened, they didn't believe it. They did believe it, but they didn't want to believe it. Right. And then it just closes out, Kevin, in verse 17, uh, verse 17, it says, motioning them with his hand to be silent. Shh. He explained to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Report these things to James and the brothers, he said. And then he departed and he went to a different place. I love this story because when there is freedom, I want to go to that little phrase that said, and Rhoda had joy. Rhoda had this joy because he had been set free and uh, she went to tell people. And yet in all of this, I think it's in verse 15 or 14 or 15. In all of this, uh, like it was surreal. It was surreal. And yet this is what they were longing for. The Israelites in Psalm 126, this is what they were longing for. And yet in some way it was like, man, this feels like a dream. But because it's so real, there was laughter, there was joy, and they recognized, the nations recognized, people recognized, man, they have the joy of the Lord. God is in this. This is such a practical statement. But can I, can I just say this? Like, do you live a life of joy? In Psalm 126, verse 3, look at this. It says this. The Lord has done great things for us. This is what they're saying. We were joyful. <laughs> they're not living in captivity right now. They're living in freedom. And I really believe that when you actually believe God has set you free, you know what happens, you guys? You walk with the joy of the Lord. It's the, it's the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, and the peace. It actually begins to, to show to other people. And it's this nation's line of Hey, they have what I like. I like that. It's almost like there's a jealousy component that Israel has become a light to the other nations because God's showing up. And so within us, there is what Wearsby says, the joy of freedom. And can I just tell you this? If you don't and aren't operating in the joy of the Lord, you're probably still functioning in captivity. You're probably still living in this Babylonian mentality that you haven't been set free. And that's really a lie from Satan. And so within us is the joy of freedom. Wearsby then says it really simple in verse four. And I like how the way he articulates this. Because he says around us is the promise of life. So around us and within us. So what does that mean? Well, it says in verse four, this restore. <laughs> this is, this is a loaded verse. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like water courses in the Negev. There's a prayer, you guys, that are realizing God's going to do something unique. 
I'm going to read some commentary stuff here, and then I'm going to just tie this into something just crazy ridiculous that I never saw. So here it is, like the watercourses in the Negev, that's like the, the streams in the south, okay? That's, this is really what we're talking about. It's an arid region south of Beersheba called Negev, which is utterly dry in the summer, okay? But whose streams quickly fill and flood with rains of the spring. So it literally goes from dry to a whole lot of water. It's kind of crazy how it happens. And so here's the psalmist, the unknown psalmist. Here's what he's praying, that Israel's fortunes would rapidly change from nothing to everything. So, Lord, would you please restore uh, our fortunes, Lord, like water courses in the Negev. As we're coming back in, I really long to see a whole lot more. So, God, would you show us like they could actually become, uh, can I just say this, like the flood. They could become the flood with travelers moving back into the land. And what are they doing? They're moving back into the land for his first people to occupy. So God, would you then flood this community with your people again? Restore us back into your place. Now, here's where I want to go with this. And I have to tell you, I read this from Nelson's commentary and I had to laugh. Because I know what this is talking about. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like water courses in the net. He's talking about, yes, bring back the people, restore us back with prosperity. And oh, by the way, like, the, like you've done with the waters, right? That's, that's pretty obvious. But every once in a while, Kevin, it does probably point to the king of glory. Here's what Nelson's commentary says. This is actually the prayer. And you guys can dispute this if you want. But as I began to pray through this, I was like, man, there's a little something here to this, okay? The prayer for actually the coming of Jesus. Okay, three, three waves of people, right? They're coming back. Three waves of people under Zerubbabel, under Ezra, and under Nehemiah. And then we know in this time frame, Kevin, they're going to rebuild the temple, right? They're going to rebuild the temple. Okay, we know that with time, even in all of this, eventually the temple is what, Kevin? It's destroyed again. It will be destroyed again, correct? We know, though, that what? There's going to be a third temple, a third temple right? The third temple has to come in place when the Antichrist lands a deal. The Jews can come in. They can reestablish, rebuild the temple, correct? Right? And then the Antichrist is going to come in there. It's going to cause some problems. But in all of this, then the king of glory is going to be coming back, correct? Okay. So you have that picture. Just hold this for a second. I'm going to go somewhere. I hope we can all tie this together. In John 7, verse 37. Sorry, I had you move here for a second. Uh, I think this is right, Kevin. Yeah, on the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and he cried out, Hey, if anybody's thirsty, he should come to me and drink. And then he says in verse 38, The one who believes in me, as the scripture said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. And so there's this cool image of God coming back, restoring. And then what happens, Kevin? We will experience the spirit of God, the streams of living water that's going to flow deep from within us. And so it's almost like this Psalm 126, verse 4. It's just like a picture of Christ coming in, restoring, and oh, by the way, the water really is going to flow freely through us. Okay, that's kind of the picture. Psalm 126, then you got the John 7, 37, 38 image. Christ has done this. But now I want to actually go to the Temple Mount mentality. Okay, so in Ezekiel 47, 1, this is going to take a little while to read. So just hang in there with me, okay? It says this, then he brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. So here it is. There's a temple, right? And Kevin, what's happening? The water is coming from the temple, right? 
And from the temple, watch what happens. Verse uh, 2, next he brought me out by way of the north gate. This is a vision, okay? Some would say that he's seeing. And he led me out around the outside to the outer gate that faced east. There the water was trickling from the south side. Verse 3, it continues on. As a man went out east with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a third of a mile and then he led me through the water. So what happened is that this person is experiencing. Now, this is where it all ties in. Remember the whole Peter thing and how he's walking it out and he's like, is this... Is this real or not? Right. And then what happens in Psalm 126? They're walking it out. And what are they saying? Is this is this real or not? And in Ezekiel 47, three is a man went out east with a measuring line in his hand. It says he measured off a third of a mile and this man walked through the water and the water came up to his ankles. Now, where's the water flowing from? The presence of God, which is the temple. The, temple. the water is flowing. It says in verse four. Then he measured off another third of a mile and he led me through the water. The first third, Kevin, where did the water come to? To his, ankle. to his ankles. Now it's going to come to his knees. It came to my knees. He measured off another third mile. So the water that's flowing from this temple, Jerusalem, okay, it goes from his ankles to his knees. Now watch, the water flows again. It measured it again. And it was, a. Uh, thank you, go back. And it led me through the water and it came up to my waist. <laughs> is this a vision or is this real? Verse five. Again, he measured off a third of a mile. It was a river that I couldn't cross on foot. For the water had risen, it was so deep, it was deep enough. Now, now the guy's got to swim in it, a river that could not be crossed on foot. This water that's flowing from the south of the threshold of the temple. Keep going. He asked me, do you see this son of man? And then he led me back to the bank of the river. Continues on for a little bit here. When I had returned, I saw a very large number of trees along both sides of the river bank. Verse 8. And along this river bank, he said, this water flows out of the eastern region and goes down to the Arabah. And when it enters the sea, the sea of foul water, which rich, which rich is what sea? Uh, the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea. So this water is going to flow, you guys, from, this is crazy, right? From the temple. It's going to flow all the way to the Dead Sea, which rich, how far of a drive is that? From the temple? Yeah. Uh, it's like 45 minutes to an hour. At least. So now you have this fresh water coming into the Dead Sea. The water of the sea. So the Dead Sea, what happens to the Dead Sea? It becomes fresh. It's like the presence of God actually ushers in something of a ridiculous miracle. And in verse 9, it says this, Every kind of living creature that swarms will live wherever the river flows, and there will be a huge number of fish because this water goes there. And since the water will become fresh, what's going to happen to the Dead Sea? (laughs) There will be life everywhere the river goes. And in verse 10, it continues on. Fishermen will stand by, beside it from En Gedi to En Aglem. These will become places where nets are spread out to dry and their fish will consist of many different kinds like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. Yet its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be left for salt. I actually think it keeps going here, Kevin, just for a little bit longer. And then the scripture just says this. Yeah, it goes to 12. All kinds of trees providing food will grow along both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail, which I really love that image, you guys, by the way, that living water produces fruit, nothing dead. Each month they will bear fresh fruit because the water comes from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be used for food and their leaves for medicine. So when I, I, and I have to tell you, the Lord just really spoke to my heart. Rich was there for this time when we were in Minnesota, when Ezekiel 47 came to life for me personally. And all of a sudden, I went back to Psalm 126. And Psalm 126 has this image, you guys, of, hey, by the way, would you just restore everything that's dry? 
Everything that doesn't have water, God, would you just fill it back up with your presence? And so it's like we're coming out of bondage. We want to experience new life. That's what they're praying for. And the reality is, is then when you jump into something and then you say, okay, Jesus, I, I need you to do this. Guess what? He gives us a living water. And so it's this weird progression because ultimately it gets into Ezekiel 47. And we're going to see the temple again and how it's going to bring life to the land. It's just like this crazy book and picture. Within us is the joy of the freedom that we can experience. Around us is actually the promise of life that is coming. They don't know even what they're praying at that time. It's through Christ and and then it's going to come through the, the third temple. And then just to wrap all of this up, I do want to just say and acknowledge something really, really uh, obvious, but I like what... Um, I like what Wearsby writes here, and he just says, before us, so within us is the joy of the freedom, around us is the promise of life, and then before us comes, and this is kind of the interesting part, the challenge of work. Kind of at first felt a little bit different, a little bit off, but then when you read this, it says this in verse 5, those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. And then he says in verse 6, Though one goes along weeping, carrying the bag of seed, he will surely come back with shouts of joy, carrying his sheaves. In other words, Kevin, you know a lot about this, but farming is a a painful pursuit at times, right? The ground is hard. It's wild. You don't know necessarily all this process that's going to take place. It takes work in order to do what? To see fruit. Nelson says it really well, commentary. People who return, okay, there's a small percentage. They're coming back. They wept as they went into Babylon. And then it led to this repentance. There was this sorrow repentance. And then there became, because of this repentance, the end of 70 years, there actually became this tremendous rewards. And it was like the Lord truly came to rescue his humble and his repentant people. But that freedom and that rewards, it didn't happen until there was confession and repentance, which is actually strange enough work. I don't want to... I don't want to deal with that issue. You guys ever said that before? I have. But when you deal with the issue, guess what happens? You get to experience the fruit of what you had to deal with. Most of us, Tom, ready for this? Most of us, you want to just push it under the rug. We really don't want to do and deal with the work. But the Lord wants to deal with those. And I really believe this. He wants to allow us to reap a harvest of rejoicing. But it only comes, you guys, I really believe this, when we are willing to submit ourselves and do the work to ask the Lord to release us from the things that have kept us in bondage. And it actually takes work. I don't know how else to describe that, but I've seen that in my own life. I don't know, Kevin, you want to comment on that at all in any way? We don't necessarily get up and... And do it. It's not that we can do it, but he calls us to do it. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> it's kind of like people want to get freed from the bondage and the captivity, but they, they don't, they don't want to do anything to get there. Can you go to Galatians 6, 9, just as we wrap all this up, please? Galatians 6, 9. And I don't really like this. It says, so we must not get tired of doing what is good. 
That, that could be the tangible thing the Lord's leading us and asking us to do, actually leaving the land. It could be in reference to confession. It could lead in, in reference to repentance. But whatever he's asking us to do, we can't get tired of this because then at that point, we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. I don't know how this works. I just know that too many of us quit before we ought to stop like or before we start. We should walk this thing out. And so within us, there's a joy of freedom. That's the experience I want to get. That's where I want to be. And then I really realize that there's, there's a lot for us to promise. There's a promise of rewards in life that's around us. And here's the cool part. What I like about what Wearsby says, you got to actually do something about it. You got to do something about it in order to experience the fullness of God in your life. That's not a workspace thing. We're not talking about salvation here. We're talking about walking this thing out so you can experience more of Him. So it's a quick summary of uh, Psalm 126. There's more to come. And it happens through him working through you and me. All right, guys, have a great day. We'll talk to you tomorrow.